Good morning and welcome to this week's Backstory. My name is Noreen Mir and this week we have a very special guest with us. You've heard him on the radio before, you've heard him uh, in the media before, but I think up until now this may be his first personal interview uh, because having worked in the civil service for the last 30 odd years, you rarely get uh, close and personal to a former civil servant. In the studio with us, well, actually not in the studio, on location with us, we have Jonathan McKinley. Jonathan, welcome to the program, John. Thanks very much indeed, and thanks for calling me very special, Noreen. I don't get that very often. Well, um, you are. So, first of all, thank you so much for, for joining us. I know I know, uh, it's it's probably one of the first after-post-retirement interviews, and it's, it's our honour here at Radio 3. So tell us, we are here right now at the Kowloon Cricket Club. You've chosen this to be the... Uh, 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 personal location. What does this place mean to you, then, John? Uh, well, it's it's very simply a very nice and pleasant atmosphere to be in. Uh, we're in the heart of the city, but in front of us, there's a lovely big green lawn. We're surrounded by trees. Um, yes, you can hear the sound of drilling in the background, but I think that's that's Hong Kong for you. Um, but it's just a really nice oasis of a place to come to. It's something that's a bit of a home away from home for the older members like myself who used to be active sportsmen but now just enjoy watching other people doing it most of the time. Um, and I think it's also a place which reminds me a little bit of, of you know how I've been able to make a bit of progress in my life. I've now become a member of this, this wonderful club which is something I never could have dreamed of I think in, in my, my early days, in my childhood, my, even my early days in Hong Kong. So it's nice just to come here and, and feel like I'm part of the Hong Kong fabric. Yeah, actually, I can't say I'm completely surprised because having been the Deputy Secretary of Home Affairs, sports was sports development was your was your last area actually of, of interest in the government. So I'm really pleased that we are on location in a in a sporty place. And thanks for bringing us out. I haven't been back since I was about 11. I mentioned that off air. So, John, without further ado, let's start right from the beginning. Um, where are you from? And uh, tell us a little bit about your childhood. W- what did your parents do? Uh, well, that's a, a bit of an interesting question to start off with because I was born in Croydon, uh, just south of London, um, in the 60s, and uh, that's all you need to know. Um, and I suppose my early childhood was what you might call a little bit unsettled. Um, my parents actually split up when I was just three years old, uh, and my mother took my younger brother and I to go and live with her mother uh, on the island of Guernsey in the Channel Islands. Uh, so that's when I first went to school. Um, but after a, two or three years there, we moved back to the mainland uh, to a very small village just 10 miles outside Cambridge. Uh, my grandmother sold up the family home in, in Guernsey, bought a plot of land in the village, and we were going to live in a small bungalow there, which we were going to have built by a local builder. Uh, unfortunately, when we arrived, the bungalow was only about two feet high, and the local builder had done a runner. Um, so we spent the next two or three years being sort of shunted between living with families in the village. Uh, we lived in a caravan in a pub car park for six months, which was quite an interesting experience. Um, we lived with my uncle in Newcastle for a year, which was the third primary school that I went to in three years. Um, but finally, I think about the age of eight onwards, we kind of settled down. We settled down in the village. And I suppose for the next ten years, you could say I grew up as a sort of a bit of a village boy um, in this, this very small village, 900 people or so in, uh, in Cambridgeshire. To say you come from a humble background is is an understatement, John. Did you have a happy childhood? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's um, you know, we were obviously a single parent family, uh, and in those days, uh, it was it wouldn't be sort of realistic for my mother to go out and work. Um, so we kind of lived on welfare, which was it wasn't really a sort of big stigma in those days. I mean, there were quite a few other people in the village in sort of similar similar situation. 
But I mean, as a kid, when you're growing up, you don't really notice that very much, um, particularly in the countryside. You come home from school, you go out, you climb trees, you chase cows, get chased by cows. Um, you know, you explore the local, you know, scenery, whatever you do. Um, you don't really sort of feel deprived um, or, or poor in particular. Um, and it was a fairly, just a fairly standard average childhood, I would say, as far as my brother and I were concerned. What did you guys do? Were you quite a naughty child? Not especially. I mean, there was always, I was easily led, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, you know, if there was some petty vandalism or shoplifting going on, then I might be involved um, usually on the fringes of it, I would say. I certainly wasn't the, the ringleader type. I was quite bright at school until I was about 11, and then suddenly I ended up going to a very, very sort of posh, got a scholarship to a very posh and highly academic school in Cambridge, the Perth School for Boys, which was really, really for high achievers, children of university dons, lawyers, architects, professional people. Um, and I suddenly found myself some way out of my depth academically so I was I scrambled for several years to sort of just find my feet then um, but yeah I mean I think as I said a very average kind of childhood growing up I felt yeah growing up say um, w were you close to your dad were you in touch with him at, at all uh, after you moved uh, with, with your mum with your grandma as well no I think uh, I, I never saw my father again after the age of three and, and the um, the my mother's side of the family and the propaganda machine went into full swing um, and I heard all sorts of bad things about him, uh, most of which have since been corroborated actually by his own family. Um, I think it was just a very unfortunate sort of situation my mother found herself in and, and so he was, he was kept away from us. So we never really had that, that sort of exposure to his side of the family. Um, I had an uncle who we were very, very close to, my mother's younger brother, and he, he spent a lot of time with us and, and he never had children of his own. Um, so I think, you know, they, they were sort of father-type figures in my life, but, um, you know, a, a man can't lose what he don't have, you know, as the song goes. So, I mean, it's not something you really miss. It's just that's how your life pans out. Yeah. Did that have an effect uh, perhaps on yourself growing up or even when you became a father yourself? <laughs> um, growing up, I think not so much. I mean, there were other people who were in single-parent families. There wasn't a particular stigma attached to us as kids I think maybe my mother had it a bit tougher she never remarried and obviously people talk about single women etc um, but I think for my brother and I it was okay certainly as you say becoming a father and, and a husband myself uh, it took me quite a long time to convince myself to make that step uh, without any sort of successful role model to refer to and in fact my younger brother got married before I did um, I think that kind of helped. You know, he made it work. So I thought, well, if he can, maybe it's not genetic. Maybe we can, uh, we can sort of change the record here and, and, and improve on things. And, and so far, so good. What did you want to be when you were little? Did you did you have dreams of becoming? You know, I don't know why doctors and engineers come to mind, but you know, that's like the first thing that Asian parents tell you to, <laughs> to become. There were certainly no doctor or engineer role models in my early life. Um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a footballer that was it I really wanted to be a footballer I was very good at football when I was little um, I played for the county when I was 10 years old uh, okay it's Cambridgeshire it's not a big county but um, I was yeah I was fairly decent and it was really my ambition but but my mother really wasn't keen on that at all she she was of the view that footballers were you know it's a 10-year career you're going to get injured and then you're going to end up running a pub if you're lucky you know there's no future in it um, so, and, and she was delighted when I went to secondary school because it was a non-football playing school. It was rugby, hockey and cricket. So I was miserable as hell, but my mother was delighted by that. And so the dream of being a footballer passed. Um, when I was in my early teens, if you asked me what I wanted to be, I would say bank manager. I don't know why. Yeah, it just, 
It just, you had to say something. People say, what do you want to be? I'm a bank manager. It's just, you know, you wore a suit. It sounded like quite a respectable job, which in those days it certainly was. Um, stable, good career. I mean, a bit boring perhaps, but, you know, boring didn't really sound so bad where I came from. So, I mean, that was just something that came out. Um, when I was 16, I joined a pop band at school. And played I in the band. I can see you being a. Yeah, yeah. I, did, I enjoyed that. I learned guitar, and the best way to learn guitar was to be in a band. Um, so we formed a little band, and we, we played quite a bit, um, did a little bit of sort of recording. Um, one of the band members has since gone on to be very successful as a singer and songwriter, a chap called Boo Hewardine, um, who has written songs for people like Brian Adams and oh, The Cause wow. and Eddie Reader and himself. He's a very, very successful uh, folk and, and pop musician, um, plays a lot of gigs around, around England and, and even internationally. Um, great, very talented musician. Very, very smart man indeed. And he's a good um, friend of yours. Yeah, he was a very good friend yeah. at the time. I mean, we've not really kept in, in touch, but I, I intend to go and surprise him at one of his gigs one day soon and, and uh, maybe get on stage with him and uh, show him how talented he is. Um, but yeah, at 16, I wanted to be a pop star. But then the band split up, and then at the end of my school years, I think I was attracted to the idea of a career in journalism. Um, I've always loved reading newspapers and following the news and watching the news and listening to the news. And I thought, yeah, journalism, you know, with my interest in communication, in overseas, in languages, it seemed sort of a natural thing to get into. Um, I was quite decent at writing English, so I thought, yeah, that would be quite good. And I half-heartedly applied for a job at Reuters, um, but they never wrote back. So I kind of abandoned that idea and just went blind into university thinking, well, let's just go to university and see what happens yeah well john i know you've brought along a song as well let's have a listen to the song and maybe then afterwards we can go back inside and finish off the interview as well <laughs> what is the title of the song and what does it mean to you then john well the, the song means to me it, it's really a reminder of a time when i was just starting to grow up um i just got to university i just turned 18 i had some freedom some independence a bit of money in my pocket and it was a Friday evening. I was in a car with three other guys. We were traveling to a jumble sale to buy our winter clothes, uh, which is what we did in those days at university, frugal as we were. Um, and this song came on the radio, one of my favorite bands ever. And I think it was the first time it was being played on UK radio. It came on. Um, it's a song called Going Underground by The Jam. And every time I hear that, it reminds me of that time of my life when I felt it's really starting. It's really getting going full of energy, full of excitement, and as I said, one of my best, favourite ever bands doing one of their best ever songs. Yeah, well, let's talk about university life then. Oh. You went to University of Reading and right. studied French and, and Russian. Yep. Wow. D did you learn Russian during high school? Or, uh, well? No, not at all. In fact, I, I initially went to, to, to Reading to study French and international relations. Um, I still had, at that time, ideas that I might want to be a journalist, and I felt international relations would be a good thing to have in your pocket along with the language. But having read one or two of the uh, set texts over the summer, or tried to, and found them incredibly boring, um, I got to university, immediately dropped international relations, the dismay of my tutor, who was an international relations tutor, um, but had to pick another subject for the first year. Uh, I went along and was told that the Russian faculty hosted the best parties, um, went to their presentation, and the head of faculty, very charismatic man, convinced me that, yes, you know, with my language abilities, I should try learning Russian and I would enjoy it. I did enjoy it. It was tremendous fun. And I kept Russian as my sort of joint degree subject for the next three and a half years. What was university like for you? Oh, it was just freedom, absolute freedom. Um, you know, having your own space, 
uh, having your own time. In those days, there were maybe about 12 hours a week where you had to show up for lectures and classes, doing the subjects that you were really, really interested in, uh, being with like-minded people of your own age, and a far more diverse group than the group that I'd grown up with up until that point, you know, in terms of, you know, just, just where they were from, um, within England and outside England, of course, um, and, and just that feeling of, of having a lot of potential and, and really being in a position to try and unlock that. Yeah. Did you always know you were going to university? It was always an aim, I think. I mean, the school I went to in Cambridge, you know, a third of the kids there ended up at Oxbridge. Um, and frankly, if you weren't going to Oxbridge, you were in kind of like the B or C category. Um, you know, even going to very respectable universities like Reading or, or Kent or somewhere like that, you know, it was somehow not quite in the top category probably C actually rather than B. B was like Durham, Durham and, yeah. and Bristol and, 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 and London and all these other wonderful places but you know I just thought you know going to university at that time was just an aim in itself and I was so happy to be there and, and obviously the people you meet there are then people that, that you know I think remain your friends for, for life really. Yeah. Okay let's talk about your journey to Hong Kong then John. How mm. did you end up in Hong Kong having studied French and Russian in Reading? Yeah, it was it was very serendipitous. I mean, I had no real idea. I'd given up my dreams of being a footballer and a pop star and, and even a journalist by that 10. time. Oh. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Reuters rejected me. Well, they didn't reject me. They just never replied. So maybe I put the wrong postage on or something. But, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I used to spend my summers in the library, the local library in Reading, because it was cheap, uh, just reading the newspapers. I loved reading the newspapers. And, and the last summer before I was, I was due to graduate, uh, I was, you know, extracting all the juice out of The Guardian, and there was a big advertisement saying that the Hong Kong government was recruiting administrative officers uh, using the UK civil service recruiting procedure. And I thought, wow, that looks quite attractive. And then I looked at the salary and offer, and I said, that looks even more attractive. And then it said, your first six months would be spent learning Cantonese. I thought, fantastic, and being paid for it. So that sounds like the job for me. And that's about as far ahead as I thought. Um, wrote off and applied. Um, they directed me to the local training centre. I did a day and a half of written tests, which seemed to go okay. A couple of months later, got a letter from the civil service recruitment people saying, come down to London for two days, more testing, extensive psychological profiling, mock meetings, uh, interviews, more written work. Um, and actually, I quite enjoyed it. You know, you were in small groups with other people who are applying to be diplomats, tax inspectors, British civil servants, and all the rest of it. Um, got on fine. And two months after that, got a letter saying, come to Whitehall, the final selection board is meeting, and you're invited. Um, so, How did you feel at that time? Well, by that time, I really wanted the job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously, I was quite nervous. There was a 45-minute interview in front of these high-powered people from universities, the head of the National Health Service, very senior civil servants, diplomats, someone from the Hong Kong office. Um, and I was just gently grilled for 45 minutes. You know, it was, it was a nice sort of process. They just gradually turned up the heat. Um, and I walked out of that, and for the first time in about four years, I thought to myself, Jesus, I'm not that smart after all, really. Um, and I thought I'd, I'd messed up. Um, but a few weeks later, I got summoned to the Hong Kong office in Grafton Street in London. Um, I was greeted at the door by a nice old chap in a scruffy suit, and uh, I was a bit late for the interview. So I asked him, Look, where should I go for the interview? And he pointed me up the stairs. So I sort of said a cheery, thanks, mate, and bounded up the stairs and uh, straight into the interview room. Um, sat down and all the panel was ready except for the chairman and they said oh the chairman will be here in a minute and he walked in about a minute later it was the scruffy old guy on the door it was none other than Sir Jack Cater former chief secretary head of the ICAC 
now commissioner in the London office. Um, and, and he sat down. No idea. I have no idea who he was. He looked like some old doorman to me. Um, but luckily, Sir Jack Cater is a very, very nice fellow, common touch, and, and put me at ease. And uh, I got on very well throughout the interview. And, and I mean, I knew nothing about Hong Kong, but they said that doesn't really matter. Um, you know, you'll adapt when you get there. And I think they were they were sort of impressed that I was very very keen, very very keen to go there. I'd lived overseas during my university course. I'd spent six months in France, four months in what was then the Soviet Union. Uh, I'd enjoyed that, and I think you know they could see that I was ready to take on the challenge. So they said, "Yep, yeah, out you go. Three years probation. See how you get on, and then uh, then we'll review it." So I arrived in uh, August 1983 on a BA flight via Bombay um, with seven other raw recruits from the UK and basically got straight into it. Amazing. What was your first impression? I suppose it was Kai Tak. Uh, that was the year. But what was your first impression of flying into Hong Kong then? Yeah, well, like everyone else, in their first flight into Hong Kong, we came through the buildings. We didn't come through the sea. And I, I really thought we were going to hit something. Um, but of course, you know, you never did. Um, got out of the plane. Your first reaction, of course, is who left the heating on? It was end of August, early September, uh, and so that took a little bit of getting used to. But interestingly, I mean, having been and lived overseas a little bit in France and Soviet Union, having having travelled to one or two other countries on, on backpacking trips, Hong Kong actually somehow seemed a little bit familiar. I don't know what it was. I mean, our first meal, we went out to the YMCA for dinner, and, and you know, obviously the, a lot of English stuff everywhere, and... and I mean, I, I certainly wasn't used to living in an environment where, you know, almost everyone else is ethnically different from me and speaks a different language, but it felt kind of familiar, not like really, really like a foreign country in the way that the Soviet Union had. And I sort of felt quite, I wouldn't say at home, but I found it very easy to adapt to Hong Kong very early. Which area did you live in when you first came to Hong Kong then? Uh, well, they, they put us in the service departments in um, Kennedy Road. Uh, a place called the Hermitage, uh, which sounds very <laughs> grand, but um, it was uh, it's a place for hermits, um, and, and we were hermits for a very short while. Um, but that was just like a one-bedroom, little one-bedroom apartment. Um, but at that time, the, the government had just built a, a few new blocks out at Sha Tin of, of deep, non-departmental quarters, as they're called, so government flats. Um, and no one really wanted to move out to Sha Tin. And so they had a lot of these, like, really nice 2,000-square-foot, three-bedroom apartments going with balconies, swimming pool downstairs. And although it was way above our pay grade, um, in order to fill them, they encouraged the young recruits like myself to move out to Chart Inn. And so there I was living in this virtual palace, okay, way out of town, but it was, it was a great living environment. And, of course, four or five of us moved in at the same time, so there were some friends, people to borrow sugar from, people to steal records from and all this kind of thing. So it was, it was a, you know, a very nice sort of way to get into Hong Kong and nice to be living out of the city and traveling in and out. And, in fact, since then I've never lived on Hong Kong Island. I've almost always worked on Hong Kong Island, but I've always lived either in the NT or in Kowloon. So when you moved to Hong Kong and you spent maybe the first six months learning Cantonese, mm. what was your first posting then? After that, they actually gave me another three months Cantonese, um, probably because they couldn't find a job for us because they hadn't organized it properly. But I, the, the, the official reason was we were actually quite good at Cantonese, a few That's of us. That's why you're Chinese. So they good. gave me a special advanced course, which I'm sure is actually the real reason. Um, and then I was sent out to work in the NT in North District. 
um, initially in the old office in Taipo, and then we moved to an office in Fanling. And for about a year and a half, I was I was out there, you know, dealing with the local villages. There was one other Westerner in the office, my boss, who was a, a crazy Scotsman, but who was a superb guy to work for. He really taught me a lot in my first job there. Um, and we had a lot of fun. I mean, I had a lot of fun mixing with the villagers, the sort of local worthies, but also having to really get you know, down and dirty on the ground with the, the old deers and the guys who are having their homes ripped up to build new highways and sort of, you know, being the interface between them and the big international construction companies. And, you know, that was, that was a real eye-opener. There was a lot of work to do, but I found it very enjoyable. And, and you could actually see the progress being made, you know, literally almost day by day yeah. in the work that we were doing. How has Hong Kong changed, in your opinion, over the last 30 years you've been here in Hong Kong? You had to say 30 years, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, I did say 80s, didn't I? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Hong Kong's become a lot more modern. Um, you know, back when we first arrived in 83, it, it was a bit of a joke that there were two of everything. Two universities, uh, two bus companies, two TV stations, uh, two MTR lines, two kinds of beer on tap, San Miguel or Carlsberg, you were either one or the other. Um, I mean, these days, it's just unrecognizable from that. I mean, everything about Hong Kong has just developed um, to a stage where we're a truly modern city in the very best sense, I think. I mean, Hong Kong was no backwater back in the 80s, um, but it was still something of a... It was in the transition from manufacturing to service. I mean, before you went to Hong Kong, all you knew about were the cheap made-in-Hong Kong toys, and it had that sort of slightly cheap and cheerful element to it. Um, Hong Kong has modernized very, very efficiently. Um, you know, we're an incredibly clean and convenient and safe and comfortable city now. Um, and that wasn't always the way. Um, and, and certainly the developments that we've seen over the last 30 years in things like public housing, um, public housing is so much nicer now than it used to be. Um, the transport links are so much better. I mean, the old CMB buses, the old China motor buses, I don't know if you ever went on them, but, you know, it was, it was always a risk, actually, sitting on one of those things, a health risk in many ways. Um, uh, and, and, and now everything's just, just so much more convenient. And the city has moved on. And it, it's, it's really modern. It's more diverse. It's more pluralistic. Um, and, and I think in, in, in every respect, almost, Hong Kong has become a better place in which to live. Yeah. Let's talk about your, your time in the government as well, John. You've worked in a lot of different departments, a lot of different bureaus. What was your favorite one? And do you often get a, a say to where you'd like to go next? How does it work? Maybe through you we can have a little idea of the inner workings of the Hong Kong government. Well, I've no idea about the inner workings of the Hong Kong government. <laughs> um, a little bit, maybe. Um, you don't really get a say. No. Um, maybe when you get to a certain higher level, there are opportunities to influence where you then go for your last three or four jobs. Um, I've personally always felt that the idea of being an administrative officer is that you should be able to adapt to any job that you're given. I've never turned down a posting. Um, I've been tempted to on a couple of occasions, but I've always like kept that one up my sleeve and, and never had to use it. Um, I wouldn't say I've enjoyed every single job I have had, but I think I've enjoyed most of them. Um, I've certainly enjoyed the sports a lot. Um, I've been in the sports field twice, and I've enjoyed that a lot because I understand sport. I understand the value and importance of sport, and I like working with the sports community. They're very, very decent people, and, and they give a lot, I think, to Hong Kong. But funnily enough, I actually most enjoyed working on the competition law. Because, seriously? Seriously, because it was a, it was a real intellectual challenge. 
um, of the kind sometimes you don't often get. A lot of the time you're just sort of making things happen, you're working through meetings. This one was really sitting down with some very intelligent people and working through how a competition law should work for Hong Kong and also helping to sort of overcome some of the sort of social resistance, um, learning a lot more about something that I knew nothing about. I mean, I knew nothing about economics and, and cartels, price fixing, abuse of dominance, and I really found it fascinating. I worked with a small but very, very good team of people, a really good government economist um, who was part of the team. Um, the bosses were very, very good on side with it. It was a personal crusade of Donald Jungs, who was then the, the chief executive, to get this thing through. So there's a lot of high-level support. Um, and I really enjoyed just for a couple of years having a very sort of strong a chance just to stretch my intellect um, a little bit more. That's not to say I wasn't using it in other jobs, but this was something that just challenged me. And, and I really did quite enjoy that, and I relished the challenge. Yeah. What do you do for fun, John? Are you quite a sporty guy? What, what do you do uh, to, to relax in your spare time? I love my sports. I mean, I, I still play football uh, at a sort of attempt to play competitively in an amateur league at a very low level. I play the odd game of cricket here just for the old social fellows. I started playing a bit of golf. Golf, yeah. Not really very good at it, but I, I do enjoy going out for four hours and having nothing else in your mind apart from where yeah. your ball is gone, uh, which is usually what I'm looking for. Um, skiing, I love going overseas and, and skiing. I try and get a couple of ski trips in every year. It's expensive, but, you know, it's it's worth it. It's something I really enjoy and something as a family we do. Um, I love my music still. I still get the old guitar out and I've got a Spanish guitar, play a few tunes. I've got my old Fender Strat that I take out and I'm still learning guitar solos. I mean, how sad is that, really? No, no. Um, uh, not that I'll ever play them with a band again, I'm sure, but it's just to keep, keep your hand in. Um, I love reading. I read a lot. I read a lot of books, mostly literature. Um, that was part of my sort of training growing up with languages. I, I still read, you know, try and read books in French from time to time just to keep my hand in. Um, yeah, I mean, those sort of typical yeah. things. And I love the arts. I love going out and, and watching shows. Yeah, there's lots to keep you busy in, in, in Hong Kong, Noreen. And, and, and like I said, Hong Kong's really come a long way since I first came here. I mean, we were something of an artistic and cultural desert. Now now the kind of things we get, the kind of artistic and cultural shows and festivals, the, the bands we get playing here, the sports events that we have now, um, it's incomparable to what we had 30 years ago. And, and Hong Kong has really grown uh, in that respect as well. And I think we're, we're very, very lucky to have that. Do, we, do, do you think we cater the arts uh, for the elites ma mainly, or do you think uh, underprivileged people also get an opportunity to enjoy the arts that we have in Hong Kong? I think the arts is very accessible. Um, you know, everyone's problem in Hong Kong is, is time, really. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I think this, this particularly goes for people who have to spend maybe 12 or 14 hours of the day working to make ends meet. I mean, where are you going to find the time, even if the ticket's only 20 bucks, to go and see a show? Um, and then you've got to pay 20 or 30 bucks on the bus to get there as well. So that's, you know, that's a couple of hours' work maybe. You know, it's, it's time and value for money, I think, for a lot of people is, is going to perhaps be the obstacle. But there's certainly accessibility. And, and I think there are a lot of programs now run by the arts organisations, by the government, by the jockey club, that really, I, I think and I hope, are opening up the arts in particular to a lot more people from wider backgrounds. Um, and I think everyone will benefit from that. Yeah, totally agree with you. What a pleasure to talk to you this Thanks morning. So much, Thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you as well.